Motivation is what gets you into the game, peak performance. Learning is what allows you to continue to play. Creativity, especially if you're going after kind of high, hard goals and you don't quite know where they are, is how you steer. And flow, the state of optimal performance, is how you turbo boost the results kind of beyond all expectation. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. One of the coolest things to emerge in the alternative health or biohacking scene is red light therapy. And the company that I like for my red light therapy is called Juve, J-O-O-V-V. And of course, if you're a longtime listener of the show, you've heard me talk about Juve and red light therapy in general tons. What I'd like to tell you about today is Juve's new Generation 3.0 devices. They've got some really cool features. So not only do they have the red light therapy and the frequencies that you need to do what they do like they've always done, They've got a new feature called ambient mode, which uses a lower intensity light to support your sleep and circadian rhythm. So you can turn on ambient mode in your home, wherever you have these lights set up, and they're going to help minimize, if not completely nullify any blue light leaking out in your environment and signal your brain and body that it's time to start getting ready for sleep. So that's a really cool feature. They've also got a new one called Recovery Plus Mode, which uses a pulsed near-infrared light technology to give your cells an extra healing boost that optimizes the recovery process. So these guys are the pioneers in red light therapy, the ones I've always used and will continue to use for healthy skin, performance and recovery, sleep optimization, and also mitochondrial health and hormone regulation. It's one of the big benefits that I've noticed is the upgrade to my hormones. I think if I had to nail down one particular benefit that I've gotten from the Juve Red Light Therapy, it would be that. And uh, at the time of this recording, I'm 50 years old, so I need all the help I can get when it comes to regulating and producing testosterone, etc. And there are tons and tons of scientific studies to support the fact that uh, the correct kind of red light therapy can have a profound impact on your hormones, especially testosterone production. And ladies, don't think you don't need that because women need balanced testosterone also. So anywho, if you're going to check out the new Juves, I've got some exciting news for you. You're going to go to juve.com slash Luke. That's J-O-O-V-V.com slash Luke and use the code Luke to receive an exclusive discount on their new generation 3.0 devices. So that's juve.com slash Luke. After being obsessed with all things health and wellness for the past 25 years, I have to say it's not very often that a new health product comes along that really grabs my attention and does something unique and effective. So when I got a few boxes of these electrolytes from a company called Element, I was absolutely floored. Electrolytes are not only important when you sweat from working out, you know, they help with muscle cramps, fatigues, etc., but they're also a key component to fasting, and I'm someone that likes to intermittent fast. The problem is... After I eat dinner, typically, say I eat dinner at seven or eight, 
I start getting cravings for sugar and carbs and things like that, typically later at night. I don't want to eat a whole meal. That's when the uh, problematic snacking and such ensues. So I found when I would take the Element electrolytes after dinner, it would totally curb my cravings and make intermittent fasting super easy. So I don't feel like eating sugar, carbs, or anything like that late at night. Another time I really like to use these electrolytes is first thing in the morning. So if I wake up a little fatigued or groggy, maybe I haven't gotten enough sleep, or I just don't feel like getting out of bed, I'll kickstart my day by pouring a packet of the Element electrolytes in a water and pounding that down. And it's an incredible way to start your day and get your energy moving. So I'm absolutely in love with the Element electrolytes. Whether you're looking for a low-carb diet solution or want to make fasting easier, Electrolytes are key for relieving hunger, cramps, headaches, tiredness, dizziness, and exercise recovery. And of course, Element doesn't use any sugar, artificial ingredients, coloring, or any of that garbage. So it's a very clean energy source and a source of the electrolytes that keep you hydrated and full of energy. If you're ready to check it out, here's what you do. Go to drinkelement.com. That's spelled D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T. Drinkelement.com slash Luke. When you get to that site, here's what's up. You can purchase an Element sample pack for the cost of shipping, which is $5 on U.S. orders. And each sample pack includes eight packets of Elements, two citrus, two raspberry, two orange, and two raw unflavored. Orange is my favorite, by the way. And this offer is limited to one time per customer, but I definitely recommend that you check it out. It's risk-free. Go to drinkelement.com slash Luke. You're about to wrap your ears around the 343rd episode of the Lifestylist Podcast with Stephen Kotler. This show is called The Flow State Formula, Peak Performance, Passion, and Purpose. Stephen Kotler is a New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. He's also one of the world's leading experts on all things human performance. He's the author of nine bestsellers out of 13 books, including The Art of Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold and Abundance, and his latest and my personal favorite, The Art of Impossible. His work has been nominated for no less than two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 40 languages, and has appeared in over 100 publications. Stephen is also the co-host of Flow Research Collective Radio, a Top 10's iTunes science podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of flow science and human performance. And performance is what we're going to be talking about today, ladies and gentlemen. Here are some ideas we riff on in this incredibly informative and hopefully inspiring conversation. Discovering your deepest passion. What happens when your passion is not the same as your innate skill set? The nature of flow state and how to bring it on demand. The neurochemistry of flow. And then Stephen offers a very practical breakdown of the flow triggers of curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery, as well as some of the more tangible flow triggers the most effective practical tools for goal setting, how achieving small goals has a huge impact on our achievement of the high hard goals, the difference between hard goals and clear goals, the grit required for goal realization, the principle of no pressure, no diamonds, how mindfulness and meditation practices contribute to our success, the biggest blocks to focus, Stephen's favorite hacks for boosting creativity, and finally, how creativity is indeed different from flow state. Before we jump off into this conversation with Stephen, I'd like to invite you to a very special solo cast Q&A episode this Friday. We cover why smart homes are dumb, fixing sleep, water hacks, mold danger, and acid reflux issues. So sit back, 
get your brain right, get into a flow state, and enjoy this conversation with Stephen Kotler. And if this one moves you as much as it moved me, make sure to share it with a friend. Welcome to the show, Stephen Kotler. It's been a long time coming, my friend. It's good to be with you. Yeah, man, I'm stoked. The first time I became aware of your work was a few years ago at the Bulletproof Conference in Pasadena. Oh my God, that was a long time ago. Yeah, a long time ago. I think it might have been the first one they did there. And I remember walking through the tech hall and then seeing these crazy sort of amusement park-esque trapeze rides and people flying on these giant swing sets and all this stuff. And I stopped and chatted with you for a moment and it's like, what are you guys doing here? And you said, we're working with flow states. And uh, from that moment on, I was made aware of the phenomenon of flow. And uh, I'm really excited about having a conversation with you about it today. Cool. Let's do it. That was a long time ago. That was my, that was my old company. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a while back. Have you uh, since, you know, I know based on my study of your work that your goal seems to be peak performance that one can manage with their own physiology rather than relying on the trappings of external devices and supplements and all of that. Uh, Do you still do anything in the physical realm to help elicit those states as you were then? Uh, We work on the predominantly using physiological and psychological interventions. Right. And uh, the reasons, there are a bunch of different reasons. If I want to be really dramatic, when I'm trying to be really dramatic and I'm telling it this way, what I say is, look, I'm not saying substances, pharmacological interventions can't be interesting and possible here. And I'm not saying there's a technological stuff that might be possible here. But when I was a journalist on five separate occasions, I was shot at. And at no point when somebody was shooting at me, could I be like, excuse me, sir, would you put down the AK while I use this brainwave entrainment technology and get my mind right so I can dodge your bullet? That's just not how the real world works. Or, you know, when the boss says, can you get in here? Um, I know you had, we're going to give that presentation next Friday, but instead we need it today and do it for my boss and her boss and her boss and your job depends on it. Or the much more familiar example, hey, honey, can you come in here for a minute so I can talk to you? No, you, you, there's no time to microdose. Like it's just not going to work in that, right? So I want something that is reliable, repeatable, works anywhere and, and, and works everywhere. That's where we we put our focus. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's stuff that it's not that I don't think the other stuff is useful. And occasionally we run a research project. We've got a um an ongoing multi-year uh, research project into relationship between cannabis, uh, THC, and flow, uh, and another uh, ongoing research project that actually just completed with uh, folks at Imperial College in London, Robin Card Harris's lab, where they do all the really cool neural imaging of psychedelics. And we did a very uh, interesting comparison and contrast study between flow and psychedelics in trying to figure out where is each of these tools most useful. Um, yeah. Yeah, right, those I, kinds I gather, of questions. I gathered that from your new book, The Art of Impossible. Uh, that book is very much about self-regulation and self-management to achieve peak states. And there's so much valuable info in there. And I think for the most part, I mean, there's just a lot to unpack. And I'm sure that's the freshest content in your mind. So I'd like to kind of dive into some of that because I think there's so much value in there. And also as someone who is very enamored with all of the technologies and supplements and things like that, 
uh, I have a vested interest in helping people build the awareness that they don't need external uh, things to help improve their lives, that really all the tools we need ultimately are within ourselves. And I think in your book, you did such a great job of you know, laying out a blueprint that people can use. So I think I'd like to start with something that you talked about as the passion recipe. And I think a lot of people have interest and have a difficult time identifying what perhaps is different between something they're interested in and something they're passionate about. And once we've discovered something we're passionate about, how is it possible that we can align that passion with our purpose? And maybe that would be a good place for us to start. Do you mind if I back it up three quick steps further (laughs) and just give people um, three things that are going to make all of this so much more useful? Do it, do it. Let's, um, Let's start with um, what do we mean by peak performance? And peak performance, one way to think about it is it's nothing more or less than getting our biology, as you pointed out, to work for us rather than against us. That's what we're talking about. Now, when we say our biology, what are we talking about there? Well, I predominantly focus on cognitive peak performance. This is not to say that flow doesn't amplify physical skills and there's, you know, there's that part of this equation, but predominantly I'm focused on the mental half of the equation. And when you look at the biology the, of cognitive peak performance, you're really talking about a quartet of skill sets. One is motivation. Passion recipe, which you brought up, fits into this motivation category. So we're going we're gonna to come back there in a second. Um, there's a bunch of skills that fit under the heading of motivation, bunch of skills that fit under the heading of learning, bunch of skills that fit under the head of creativity, and finally, a bunch of skills that fit under the heading of flow. Now, quick pause to define flow in case you don't know what flow is. It is technically an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And really, it refers to any of those kind of in-the-zone moments of rapt attention. It's so focused on the task at hand that everything else just seems to disappear. And action awareness will start to merge, sense of self will diminish. And throughout this experience, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, will go through the roof. So that's flow. Now, when, why these four skills, like what, it, what does one have to do with the other um, is the last thing I'll say, and then I'll go answer your question. The way I like to think about it and the way that might be useful as we kind of move through the conversation in this book is motivation is what gets you into the game, peak performance. Learning is what allows you to continue to play. Creativity, especially if you're going after kind of high, hard goals and you don't quite know where they are, is how you steer. And flow, the state of optimal performance, is how you turbo boost the results kind of beyond all expectation. So that's the overview of what we're talking about. And so this starts with motivation. We want to get into the game. What What does the research show us about motivation? Um, The passion recipe is actually a step in step. There's one thing that before that that's worth bringing up. Um, When people talk about motivation, they're really talking about four things. Extrinsic motivation, the stuff in the world we might want, money, sex, fame, right? That we'll go after, uh, that we're motivated to go after. Intrinsic motivation, and there are five big internal motivators, curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And then they're also talking about grit and goal setting. Now, when you're trying to improve performance, the place you want to start is always with extrinsic motivation because that's where the system is designed to start. The system basically says, hey, if you don't make enough money to pay your rent and pay for your food, 
Um, there's too much fear in the equation and you're going to have a very hard time performing at your best. So what the research shows is we need to make essentially enough money to pay our bills with a little leftover for discretionary income. And it's really a little, it's not a lot, but that's where the conversation starts. Okay. So most of us have that. Once you're there, what do you want next? You want intrinsic motivators. As I said, there are five of them and they're actually all designed. And when I say designed, I mean biologically from an evolutionary basis. The evolution evolved the human organism to solve certain challenges in a certain way. So that's what I'm talking about when I say the system was designed. Um, and this is over millions and millions of years. Um, intrinsic motivation starts with curiosity. It's the most basic driver. And what's the big deal with curiosity? Quite simply, you get focus for free. There's not a whole lot of levers to work with in any given situation, right? You want to improve your performance in the bowling alley. Well, there's two things you got. You've got your skills as a bowler, and we all know those improve, but slowly over time, and that's a skill acquisitional learning game. And then you have the focus, the attention you're going to bring to the bowling. The focus of the attention is your big lever. Brain is 25% of your energy, uses 25% of your energy when it's at rest. Forget about I'm trying to pay attention to something. Um, and it's 2% of our body mass. So it's this big energy hog. And the brain always wants to save energy. That's, that's a, besides the point. But in focus, when you're curious about something, oh, this is cool, I'm into it, you get focus for free. That's the big deal here. And focus from a biological perspective is designed, we build into this thing that you were talking about that is so mysterious to so many people and they want it so badly in today's world, which is passion. Passion is nothing more than the intersection of multiple curiosities. So if you could find four or five things that you're curious about and you can figure out where they all meet and then you can start learning and playing there and getting some wins. And by wins, I mean things that produce reward chemicals like dopamine. This is how you build passion. Once the system has passion, it wants purpose, which is attaching that passion to something greater than yourself. Now, why would why does the system want purpose? We we hear about purpose a lot in the world today. And it's again, it's one of these sort of mystical terms. I've got passion, I've got purpose, I want to help the world. And it sounds very altruistic. And it might be, but from a performance perspective, it's really selfish. When we have curiosity, the reason we pay so much attention to things is because we've got norepinephrine and dopamine, two reward chemicals in our system. These chemicals drive focus by enhancing excitement and attention, right? What is passion? It's a lot of norepinephrine and dopamine. It's those that little bit of curiosity turned up to maximum. When you take that passion and you attach it to something that is outside of yourself, um, something that could help not just you, but your species, your planet, animals, plants, whatever, make the planet a better place, help your species survive, you start getting pro-social reward chemicals like serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphins. And never mind what all these fancy terrors mean, they feel good. And the more feel-good drugs you get, the more motivated you are. Once you have purpose, meaning you've taken your passion, you've attached to a cause greater than yourself, the system wants autonomy the freedom to pursue that purpose. And then finally, it wants mastery, which is the skills to pursue that purpose well. So that's your full intrinsic stack. And the chunk you were talking about is the front bit, which is how do you turn curiosity into passion and passion into purpose?
Wow, that's incredible. What a great breakdown. I mean, that in essence is what this book describes in great detail, um, adding some instructions in there. Uh, the piece that's really interesting in there to me, there are many, but one is that more of a self-centered motive being something that one's passionate about. And when that passion starts to then point outward, that that then leads into purpose. And I think right now, especially in our world, uh, as things have changed so dramatically for people and we're locked inside our houses in many cases and rethinking the ways in which we generate revenue and the ways we interface with commerce and the economy. Uh, I know a lot of people reach out to me and say, hey, you look like you're you know, living your dream career, which thankfully I am. Uh, and many people I think are wanting to make a transition, right? Where they're going, God, I have so many things I'm curious about and passionate about. How can I turn that into a career rather than just having a job that pays the bills and meets my basic fundamental needs? So I think this is a really important area of study and and work, especially right now. Uh, what have you found to be different in terms of how you're approaching your work or how it's being perceived or utilized now versus two years ago when things were relatively stable and in a greater degree of normalcy? My work has it exploded in a, in a. I mean, you know, we were we were busy at the Flow Research Collective uh, before COVID, um, but Flow evolved to help us, among other things, deal with crisis situations, right? And it's you know, if you have a crisis situation and everything goes really, really, really well, you get Flow. If you have a crisis situation and everything goes really, really badly, you get PTSD, right? They're in a weird way. They're opposite sides of the same coin, but you've got the same starting point, which is a bunch of like new scary data is arriving. And what do you do? Are you going to like win or lose basically? And flow is how biologically we win in those situations. So um, we found ourselves in a very peculiar pos- position when all this started um, one, I had just written The Future is Faster Than You Think, and you know, which is a book about exponentials. Uh, COVID is an exponential, right? Any pandemic grows exponentially. And you know, we were looking at, in the book, we directly looked at how do you fight an existential crisis like this or an exponential crisis like this with exponential technology. So I had a book that, I mean, literally the book launched on the day that they released information about COVID, like China. I was on Fox News and I'm supposed to be talking about how my book is super brilliant and instead of answering this question, questions about a disease in China that nobody's ever heard of that, right? So I, we were in this weird position where like I had just written a book about the danger and solution, technological solutions to the danger. And I you know, work on peak performance that is specifically designed for crisis. It was a really weird spot to be in. And People thought we had answers, which it turns out we might have, right? We, but our my business exploded during COVID. Um, my staff uh, more than tripled, um, and uh, we weren't super small to begin with. And so, um, a lot of it has been uh, has been spent, you know, trying to figure out how to maximize ways to really help people during a really really difficult time like we've got really good kung fu but our kung fu has been entirely focused on how do you go from broken to zero that's the entire history of psychology but suddenly we were in you know in that realm as well 
and um, had to learn a lot quickly to be as useful as possible, which is kind of what I wanted to be. I don't know if that's really a great answer to the question, but um, no, that's, that was the, the, the experience was I went from, I already worked long days. Like my days start at four o'clock in the morning and they go till five o'clock at night. And I now start at two thirty or three and I go to six. Wow. Wow. Damn. Uh, when people are finding themselves in a position where they're having to reinvent themselves as many people are now, what are some practical ways? And I know you lay a lot of this out in the book without... Yeah, let, 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 let's, yeah let, so it's, some of it is... Uh, I'll try to go quickly because a lot of it is in the book. So before you actually get to reinvention in a time of crisis, you got to stabilize the organism. You got to stabilize the system. And let me just, you know, let me start with the big fact, which is if you're going to reinvent yourself, you're going to need creativity and creative problem solving to do it. And fear blocks creativity. The more anxiety, the more norepinephrine, which is predominant neurochemical underneath anxiety in our system, the more logical and linear the brain wants to be. The extreme examples, of course, fight or flight, right? There's a lot of fear and your brain says, no, 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 you don't get to be creative at all. You cannot be trusted with the controls. I'm giving you three options. You can fight, you can freeze, you can flee. That's it. You're not to be trusted. And we think that's the only time that happens. And it doesn't. It happens anytime you get scared, anytime you get nervous, anytime there's an ongoing crisis, right? So the first thing you got to do is calm yourself down. And there are um, a number of things that, you know, we always start with people. The first thing, and probably I think this is one of the most important things you can do just in peak performance in general, and it's very counterintuitive. So everybody has what is sometimes called a primary flow experience. This is whatever you've been doing since you were a little kid that is almost like 90% of the time I go skiing, I drop into flow. It's been that way since I was seven and I learned to ski. It's my primary flow experience. For some people, that's walking in nature, taking the dogs for a walk, dancing to salsa, drawing, calligraphy, pot, you know, pot reading, on and on and on. The list goes on. Um, it's endless. Um, flow shows up in everyone, anywhere, and it's not uh, tied to tasks. So it can show up during anything. So it's just whatever you know dropped you into flow the most. Now, what happens as we become adults, this is the thing we stop doing. Right, we, we responsible. We have families. We have jobs, especially during COVID. Oh my God, it's a crisis. I can't go surfing. Right, I can't go horseback riding. I can't like, and the list goes on and on. Here's why you want to double down on your primary flow experience, and here's why you want to start all stuff here. And when we drop into flow, four things are important for this conversation. One, for reasons that are technical, and I go there if you care, but um, all the stress hormones are fleshed out of our system. They're replaced by these positive feel-good reward chemicals, but it flow automatically resets the nervous system. So one, if you're trying to access creative problem solving, right, to, to reinvent yourself, the first thing you're going to need is to calm the nervous system down. Flow does this automatically. And simply by returning to your primary flow activity, especially if you've had a little bit of break from it or whatever, it's gonna, you're going to start dropping into flow very fast. It's going to reset your nervous system. Even better, as a bonus, all the neurochemicals that show up in flow, they boost the immune system. Not huge, but in a time of a pandemic, not a bad thing to boost the immune system using the, the body's own mechanisms for it. That's bonus. But 
flow, as I said earlier, it's this significant heightening in uh, certain skills. And the, the list is long, motivation, grit, learning rates, creativity, on and on, cooperation, collaboration, all these things go up. The emphasis here is on both creativity and motivation, which are two things that you're going to absolutely need to reinvent yourself. Flow, is the state itself lasts about 90 minutes, but uh, work done at Harvard shows the heightened creativity and possibly the heightened productivity will outlast a flow state by a day, maybe two. So you go skiing on Monday, Tuesday at work, you're more productive and you're more creative. Also, you're calmer because I've just re- your nervous system's calmed down and your immune system's boosted. And here's the final thing flow is essentially a focusing skill. It's in the same way that meditation is a kind of focusing skill, flow is a different kind of focus than, than you use for medication. There, it's overlaps, but there's differences. But like any skill, right? Like the more flow you get, the more flow you get. If I'm training my brain to focus, uh, on, by skiing on Monday, single point focus while I'm skiing, right? Then when I bring it into work on Tuesday, I've trained the brain how to focus a little bit better in that particular way. I'm going to have an easier time getting into flow at work. So this is why I like to start someplace obvious. Now, how much of your primary flow activity do you need in a given week? There's not great research. What we uh, have, we train about a thousand people a month. So we've got big data sets and we tell people, so we train people, aim for about four hours a week. Like an afternoon a week seems to be enough and it doesn't have to all happen at once, right? So if you've got three, four hours that, that you block, break it up over seven days if you want, that seems to work okay too. That's where I start. The next place I go is the really obvious stuff. Positive psychology says if you want to maintain the energy you need for peak performance... You need good hydration, good nutrition, seven to eight hours of sleep a night, and a fairly robust social support practice, Um, meaning you want to have regular contact with people who love you. And this is, especially during COVID, we're a little bit better now because we're starting to venture back into the world, but this is really important, especially if our contact is over Zoom. You can have real contact over Zoom and on the phone, whatever, but the reason this matters so much is an energy thing. Whenever the brain encounters a problem, a situation that could be a problem, brain wants to know, hey, is this a challenge? I can rise towards it. Or is it a threat? I should run from it. Well, how do you assess a challenge? One of the things the brain always does is it says, do you have posse? Because if you've got to go at this challenge alone, whoa, that's a big problem. Threat level orange, right? But if you've got lots of friends to help, and if you fail people to pick you up, oh, lots safer. So more energy, right? So it's an, it, there's an energy cost um, with having uh, bad social support. So on the energy and physical side, that's what you need. Now, cognitive psychology says, hey, anxiety is bad for performance, bad for creativity, it's bad for a bunch of stuff. How's your anxiety? Primary flow activity will start that, but you also need a daily practice. How do you manage anxiety on a daily basis? Research is really clear. You either have a daily gratitude practice, a daily mindfulness practice, or get daily exercise. How much do you need? Gratitude practice takes about five minutes to do it the way most positive psychologists suggest. Um, a mindfulness practice, the research says 11 minutes a day of focused meditation is enough for emotional regulation and calming the nervous system down, or about 20 to 40 minutes of exercise. Under normal conditions, we tell people, pick one, do one a day, you're fine, right? Under crisis conditions, 
maybe two. If you're crisis conditions at work and you're fighting with your boyfriend, girlfriend, sister, mother, whatever, maybe three, you know, like use your brain, but like, these are the basics. So like, this is sort of always where I start the conversation towards reinvention. Then the next thing I would tell people to do is the passion recipe, which is in the book. And if you don't want to buy the book, you could go to the passionrecipe.com, www.passionrecipe.com, because I got so many people kept talking to me about passion and purpose over the years that we actually built it into an interactive workbook. It's free. It's, it, there's a, there's a, free class on it and how to go how to go through it and how to do it in an interactive worksheet that helps you. So that's that's what exactly what I would do. Um, and that's basically exactly what we would do with our clients. Wow, that's very cool. It's interesting. There's a lot in there that I think is of high value. Uh, one of the things that piqued my interest and I got an aha from was this idea around human connection and how vital that is to supporting your perception of any given circumstance as a threat or an opportunity. And I'm thinking as you were talking, I thought about a, a business, um, <laughs> let's call it an opportunity that, that uh, occurred in my life recently. And it, it seemed like such a huge potential problem and maybe even a threat just because there were some stakes at hand. And uh, I got on the phone with one of my mentors, uh, you know, an older guy that's got a lot more experience in, in such things. And just kind of had a little war room session with him on it. And by the end of a 30-minute phone call, I was actually excited about the prospect of, of solving this equation and came out of it with very clear direction. And had I just sat and ruminated with that scenario, I probably would have, knowing myself, just frozen and procrastinated it and just put it on a shelf and not wanted to deal with it. But I was so empowered by having someone else kind of unpack it who has no emotional attachment to the outcome and has some wisdom. Knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Some knowledge and wisdom in that totally. experience. I came out of it, I was like, wow, man, I feel badass. Like I can handle this. Nice. That, that just, yeah, that's a total example. example. That, you know, I'll give you so uh, two things that uh, one is just uh, Chris Peterson, who's a positive psychologist, he's at the University of Michigan. Um, he has. Uh, said you can roughly sum up 30 years of positive psychology in a single sentence, which is other people matter. Um, now, mind you, I'm an extreme introvert and I'm still telling you other people matter. Like I go out of my way to spend as little time around a lot of people as possible. And yet I'll tell you, it's true. Here's a really weird corollary to this that you see. So in entrepreneurship, so my friend, Philip Rosedale, who's the creator of Second Life, Brilliant, brilliant mind. Wanted to know, this was a bunch of years ago, um, in between Second Life and High Fidelity, which is his new version of Second Life. He was looking at questions of entrepreneurship. Where are hotbeds of entrepreneurship and what are the conditions that lead to like a startup ecosystem in a given community? And he looked at tons of factors and runs all kinds of analysis. And ultimately, it came down to one, there was one really strong factor, which was when there were a ton of other startups in the neighborhood with a single startup, um, people were much more willing to jump in into a risky startup and join that company and help build it. And the reason was they knew if their startup failed, they were going to make a bunch of friends in the community. There were going to be a bunch of other jobs that were waiting for them and who cared. And that was literally like this. What do you need to have a really thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem? Social support so people can have backup 
So when they get their ass handed to them, which one out of 10 times is not, or you know, nine out of 10 times is not entrepreneurship is what's going to happen. They've got a place to go next. They don't mind the failure. They mind the failure leading to joblessness and poverty. Um, and if you solve that, you know, social support, Stevens has solved that problem and thus entrepreneurship. I think that's a, another way of looking at the same, you know, it's a bigger version of the same thing that you did, right? Here was a big problem. Oh, let me call a friend and, you know, oh no, not that big of a problem. And you probably ended up with backup plans out of that conversation also. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, I think it's it's a principle that is intuitive and innate, yet for those of us that are the rugged individualist, sometimes that is the least obvious, you know. You can't one uh, of the, you the raise, chain, yeah, right? you raise a really great point um that is worth sort of talking about, which is it is very hard. You can do it, like, but it's pretty damn hard to beat your biology. It's gonna because it's exhausting, right? It's just like you're wired this is you can use a vacuum cleaner to pound in a nail. It will absolutely work for a little while, right? Like sooner or later, the back of your computer is going to shatter because that's not how the system is designed to work or what it's designed to do. And the rugged individualism will absolutely, you know, it works to a certain point, right? But then, you know, where it, when it starts to fail is usually when, you know, at the exact point you can't have it fail, when like three or four crises show up at once. And you're like, okay, I'm a rugged individual, but like I can only put out one fire at, at once, right? Um, and or maybe two kind of thing. And so that at that point, you're just like, oh, okay, I'm wired to do this a certain way. I should maybe it you just well, I always say it's you can do it differently. But the thing is about getting our biology to work for us rather than against us is you just get farther faster with a lot less fuss, if you can pardon the alliteration. Um but like that's really what happens. You just go so much farther, so much faster, and it's much, much easier. It doesn't mean it's easy. Any place worth going to um, is hard to get to. And um, we don't like it when it's not. I've asked people for decades to tell me about things in their life that made the biggest difference in their lives and led to kind of the biggest changes afterwards in their life. You're talking about people reinventing themselves kind of thing. I've been asking people these questions for almost 25 years just to see what the answers are. And the answers are all over the place. But you know what? I never have, not in 25 years of asking tens of thousands of people at this point, nobody ever says, oh yeah, I got lucky and this thing happened. And then it was all just, they tell me about, I had to work three jobs to get myself through college and in medical. That, those are the stories you hear. And if you ask me that question or you that question, those are the stories we're going to tell, right? You, <clears throat> We like that kind of hard work, even though our brain tells us we don't. Um, but we like those are the things that matter the most to us and those are the things we cherish. And that's, in a certain level, the recipe for overall life satisfaction in a weird way. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. I want to take a moment to share with you an incredible discovery that human beings have been using to improve their well-being for at least 3,000 years. And I'm one of those human beings. It's a plant medicine known as kava. Now, kava has been historically used by South Pacific Islanders as a safe, non-addictive alternative to drugs and alcohol because it naturally boosts the brain's main pleasure chemicals like GABA, serotonin, and dopamine, 
while at the same time, strangely, increasing ketone production and mental energy. This means that it provides you with a relaxed sense of well-being, but also helps you focus. Now, most plant medicines will either speed you out and make you feel all tweaked, where you might be productive, but you don't necessarily feel happy, while others can bring you down and make you so relaxed you just want to fall asleep or sit in your ass all day. So kava is very unique in that it activates parts of our biology that help us to feel relaxed and focused at the same time. Now, as I said, it increases ketones, which also makes it an incredible tool for fasting. This is something you can add to your bulletproof coffee in the morning to enhance that calm and focused state. And also something you can supplement at night just to relax and chill. I mean, it does have, uh, you know, somewhat of a recreational application if that's what you were going for. I love to use it at night when I'm just ready to stop working and wind down and getting ready to go to sleep, improve my deep sleep scores, etc. So Kava is incredible. And there's only one company I would trust when it comes to Kava. It's called True Kava. And you can find it at this website. It's gettruekava.com. That's G-E-T-T-R-U-K-A-V-A. Gettruekava.com. While you're getting your chill on at gettruekava.com, you can save 15% off with the code LUKE15. Enjoy. And now back to the interview. Backing up a bit to the formula that you were laying out for someone to find their uh, sort of foundation of a pivot. You were talking about regular flow sessions being an important part of that equation and then leading into moments of mindfulness or exercise or rest where you can kind of rejuvenate in that way. I'm thinking of someone who doesn't even know what their kind of flow formula is, right? I think of myself, I go, oh yeah, I, I know if I sit down and play guitar for 15, 20 minutes, it's going to totally change my state and prepare me for an interview or, you know. So here's, an- here's another way to think about it. Um, one thing to do is think about your favorite memories because as a general rule, a lot of them are going to be flow states. And the reason is, is the same reason flow massively accelerates learning. Flow is this huge neural chemical dump. We get five of these really super potent reward chemicals. Flow appears to be the only time uh, you get all five at once. And a quick shorthand, how does memory work? What is, what's going on there? Neural chemicals are multi-tools. They do a lot of different things at once in the brain. One of the things they do is they tag memories as important, save for later. So the more neural chemicals that show up during experience the better chance that experience is going to move from short-term holding to long-term storage. So if you think back on your positive memories in your life, some of them are going to be, oh, there was this time when I met my spouse, my wife, my fiance, or whatever. And that, by the way, is probably interpersonal flow, right? Conversational flow. So maybe that's what you're looking for, right? Maybe that's, that's your best. If you're an extrovert, that could be what you're looking for. Um, but uh, those are a good place to start. Um, because of how the biology works, you can just mine your own life and trust your own experience there. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure there are people who are going to look back on their childhood and remember, oh, I used to really love horseback riding or things that might even be out of their awareness or out of their regular life. Totally. Practice. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, you, uh, it's often something that's you know pretty far. I mean, skiing I've done all the way throughout, but 
you know, I, I'll go back. I did professional magic when I was a little kid. And um, when they shut the ski resorts at the start of COVID, um, I did a lot of magic. I have a degree. Uh, I, have a, I have a minor in art. And I also started drawing again um, at the beginning of COVID. Um, the gyms were closed. You know, I was working out the best as I could like everybody else. But like, you know, gyms were closed. Ski areas were closed. Exercise was sort of closed down to me. I needed, I needed flow and easy way. So I went, just went into my history. I was like, okay, what, what used to work? Well, used to like studying dinosaurs, but like that's probably not going to happen during COVID. So what's next, right? You know, and I just sort of went through my life. It's, you know, it's interesting um, not to dwell here because I'm sure you have other questions, but one of the things we find in peak performance over and over and over again is that people don't understand that their own history is a phenomenal resource for peak performance. It's, and they don't, for example, we talk a lot about figuring out what are your strengths. And when you're trying to figure out what your strengths are, if you can work uh, in a way that you're utilizing a new strength and an, an old strength in a new way, um, that tends to be very, very flowy. This is Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson, the guys we were talking about earlier. This is some of their work on strengths and values. And they discovered that if you're working to use uh, to, to use an old strength in one of your core strikes in a new way, that tends to precipitate flow a lot. And so how do you find your core strengths? Well, one of the things I always tell people is you've got to look at your history and you have to like pay attention to invisible skills and what's an invisible skill. If you grew up with drunken argumentative parents and as a kid you had to calm everybody down and de-escalate arguments well that doesn't show up on any aptitude test anywhere but in the real world the fact that you can calm people down and de-escalate arguments that's a phenomenal skill right that's an invisible skill and so those one of the there's, there's a lot of strength in our history um, in places that we don't think to look for it I think that was one of the things I found really interesting. Uh, one point in your book where you referenced the uh, Clifton Strength Finders uh, aptitude test, which I did a number of years ago, and I found it to be so remarkably accurate. And one of my top five strengths at that time, this is around the time I started my podcast and went into kind of the health and wellness media space. Uh, one of my top five, it might have even been one, was uh, the um, uh, the strength of input, which is where you're just a sponge for information and you're kind of an aggregate for content, facts, data, principles, truths, right? And I remember at the time kind of going, okay, well, yeah, that's true. I consume information like a beast, but what do I do with it? And I think intuitively at that time, I sort of did reflect back on early in life. And I, I what I saw to be kind of a negative attribute was this obsessive kind of personality I had where there was the the Bruce Lee karate years where like I didn't care about anything except karate, right? And then there was the heavy metal years where all I cared about. I mean I can Oh tell dude, you- I'm a little OCD <laughs> under the collar as well, man. I like to tell people I'm on every spectrum. I started OCD, I go through CIA, I ended LSD. I'm on all the spectrums. Um but, but, but to- uh to your point, though, of, of identifying, you know, what your predominant strengths are, and and using a historical reference to see, oh, how have those strengths actually added and, value to my life in the past? And, and don't sleep on your. I mean, every one of your greatest weaknesses is, of course, right. Your kryptonites are always your superpowers, right? You, the OCD 
for me at least, the tendency, you know, as long as I understand that I have to come out of the wormhole and back into the world, you know, it's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing um, for focus. Yeah. So I guess it kind of just depends on if you identify those traits within you as a tool or a resource, it's it's how you use the tool. It's like a gun, right? A gun can be used for many positive tasks no. or or not, you know? And I think uh, in reflection, just as we're having this conversation, I think about that way in which I just aggregate and collect information. It makes me a good podcaster because yeah, I really get sure into... I interview a guy like you. I'm not just passively having a conversation. I'm very invested in your body of knowledge and I dive really deep into it in preparation for an interview and the ways in which I then share uh, that information and disperse it out into the world. I'm doing so with that level of commitment and um, and passion because it's something that's innate to me. I don't have to try to become interested in something. Once I'm interested in it, I'm all in until I know everything. It sounds like you're that way with neuroscience and and flow. Uh, so well, I was that way with that. I mean, I was a journalist for 20, which is, a, I mean, you get paid to exploit your curiosity. That's what the gig is, right? right. So it was the most amazing thing in the world. I got paid to have adventures. Sometimes they were physical adventures. Sometimes they were intellectual adventures. But that's like, are you kidding? Like they pay me for this? I would pay people for this. Like I get to go hang out with Nobel laureates and ask them questions. Right. You're kidding, right? Like really? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's my gig too. I get to talk to people like you. That When I first started podcasting, I thought... God, if I tried to get half these people to just sit down and have an hour to 90 minute conversation with me for nothing, then it would probably not happen. But because I'm creating a platform, all of a sudden I'm able to... Yeah, you guys have it easy. I used to have to call up and say, hey, this is Stephen Kotler with the New York Times. Do you know how hard it is to get a gig writing for the New York Times? Right. You guys are like, fuck it, we're going to storm the castle, God damn it. We're doing it ourselves. Yeah. I wasn't that smart. Like, I have a microphone and a Zoom account. Will you talk to me? Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's right when I finished my New York Times bestselling book, I'm happy to give you an hour of my time. Explain the principle, no pressure, no diamonds. I think when it comes to performance, uh, I've noticed personally that if I'm on a deadline and uh, I'm going to suffer if I don't get something big done, that it's a great motivator for me. Is that what that principle is about or is there more oh, to that's it? it? That's interesting. Um, I hadn't... It could be. I hadn't thought about it that way. I always... I just think that Anything worth doing requires hard work, and that's how I, you know, that's how I think about it um, more than anything. And um, I also think uh, when I think about no pressure, no diamonds, I think like I think you have to like you have to crush diamonds into existence. And um, I often think the world is a lot like that. Like you have to not in a violent, hostile anything but you often have to take what you want from the world um and it it, it it it's not going you're to put it less dramatically everybody figures this out sooner or later but your life is not going to be anything more or less than you make it and that's right and to make it into something that you want um requires in a it acts of aggression. And I don't mean it like in a hostile way or a competitive, like I just mean it, you have to like, first of all, uh, to drop into flow, often you have to trigger the fight response. There's also, there's a moment of like diving into the thing and rising to the challenge. And that's how it's, so that's how I think about no pressure, no diamonds. Um, procrastination is a, um, 
Procrastination is a, is a funny thing because it's often a flow signal. Um, it's often a signal that, so when you're, per, the system likes to perform at its best, right? And you're not, whatever you're procrastinating, you're procrastinating is because you don't have, you don't care enough to focus enough to do your best at the thing <laughs> you're doing, or you're too scared, right? It's one or the other. And so, uh, so for we, I always tell people that with procrastination, uh, a lot of people perform procrastination, especially your emotions don't mean what you think they mean. Procrastination, we've got this like idea in society that it's this bad thing. We're doing, we're bad people because we're, no, the system wants to perform at its best and flow follows focus, right? It shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. And there's a flow trigger known as the challenge skills balance. So if you want more flow in your life, this is a really good place to start. The idea is that flow follows focus. It can only show up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. So we pay the most attention to the task at hand when the challenge of that task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap. So I would put it emotionally, and then so get me back to procrastination, that sweet spot is sort of near, but not on the midpoint between boredom and anxiety. Boredom, there's not enough stimulation here. I can't pay attention. Anxiety, whoa, there's way too much. So procrastination, the problem is that there's either not enough stimulation and you're bored, and so you can't focus, so you're going to put it off until the night before when suddenly, holy crap, the thing is due the next day. Now you've got my undivided attention, right? Um, kind of thing. So what I, I used to do this I, as of when I was coming up as a, as a journalist, uh, especially early on, to just pay my bills, I had to be really, I had to write about everything. I had to write as many articles as I possibly could write. And as a result, you'd, I'd, you know, any editor called me, I would say yes, right? Whatever it was, you need it written? The answer is yes. Just call me. I'm your guy. And um, that worked incredibly well for me, but it meant I wrote articles about tons of stuff. Occasionally, not often, but occasionally it'd be stuff I wasn't super interested in. And I, but what I would do is, okay, well, I don't want to put off an assignment that I need to feed myself until the night before because that, like my cat could get sick or, you know, that's a bad idea. So why don't I, I would up the challenge level. I would say, okay, write this article in the style of Charles Dickens and see if you can somehow get it into Maxim Magazine, right? Like I would do something <laughs> totally absurd where I'd be like, yeah, I got to try to write this like Dickens and I got to try to convince one of my editors at Maxim that it's okay. It would do stuff like that. Um, or if something, if the reason was I'm too scared, right? Then the solution is chunk the problem down smaller until you're the chunk you're dealing with is no longer scary and it sits right in that challenge skill sweet spot. So uh, I always think when, when uh, people talk about procrastination, I'm like, right instinct, wrong, wrong, just wrong, wrong response. But like, or, you know, your instinct is right. You know, put it off until you can perform at your best. For sure, right instinct just... Let's temper it so that like if disaster happens, you're not going to get your ass handed to you. That's brilliant. I, I so relate to that. I think there's a lot of truth in that, of that, uh, the two scenarios of something just boring you and not keeping your interest to get it done or you having some degree of anxiety about facing that thing. I think that uh, as you're talking, I'm reflecting like, oh yeah, I think I'm about 50-50 on that, you know, because I I can create excitement around something that I find rather boring, a more tedious task work, et cetera. If the deadline is looming, then all of a sudden there's anxiety and now there's some motivation to actually put my best foot forward. That's really interesting. I think it was in the book or perhaps one of your other interviews, you talked about having a sign in your desk that says something to the effect of, 
do the hard thing first or something. Do the hard, it says do the hard thing. It's, it hangs right there. Oh, you have it um, there still. Yeah. Um, and so here's what's interesting. People hear that and they think it's a reminder to be gritty, which it is, but not in the way that most people expect. What it's actually a reminder to do is, I always say that peak performance is nothing more or less <coughs> than a checklist. You get to the end of the art of impossible and there's roughly six things to do every day and about seven things to do every week. And some of the things are like what we talked about earlier, a daily gratitude practice, mindfulness practice, regular exercise, right? Like we've talked about some of this stuff already. Primary flow activity is one of the weekly practices. It's a checklist, but what you have to do is you have to do the same checklist Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, repeat because peak performance really works like compound interest. We all have it within us for sure, right? But the difficulty is in the repetition over time. That's where, that's where it gets tricky for people. And what I have found is that I always start my day with my hardest task, right? Most important task. Um, the thing that if I get it done, it's the biggest win. And I start my day with a 90-minute block of uninterrupted concentrate. I actually start my day with a four-hour block. But if you, you want to take up this practice... You start, see if you can start with a 90 minute block um, for your hardest test. 90 minutes is, we have uh, REM cycles, they're 90 minutes long. Everybody knows this. We also have waking cycles that are 90 minutes long. The brain is actually like really hardwired for focus for about 90 minute blocks, nine, about 110 minutes right in there, which is a little different. But um, why is, uh, and, and so one, complete concentration is a flow trigger, right? And so how much should you concentrate? Well, about 90 minutes. If you can set aside 90 minutes for your first task of the morning, your hardest task, um, or make it your first task of your work session, that's great. Um, that's fantastic. By the way, how hard should you work? Well, you should push things to the edge of the challenge skills balance. So you're right in that sweet spot. Um, but the point what you asked a question that I, I got, I went on. Uh, it was about I, the, it was about doing the hard thing. Oh, the hard thing. Okay. Yeah. So what I found is like, I always say, figure out how many things you can do in a day and don't try to do more and don't try to do less. Right. So figure out how much energy you have. And on average, is that enough energy to be great at nine things or seven things or 12 things? Cause figure out what it is and Try to do that many things in a day, no more or less, because then you're underperforming or you're not going to pull it off. But what I find is that because I'm good at flow, I sit down to write. I got to be gritty for like the first two minutes, right, to get into the project. And then I'm in and then I'm sort of I'm involved. But when I come out, the next thing on my list, the I'm like everybody else. I've just worked for 90 minutes or four hours and I, I want a break. I want a timeout, you know, that sort of thing. But I've come, to the, I've come to realize that if I do the hard thing, which is move immediately onto my next task, one, if I was in flow on the first task, I'm not going to get pulled out because of some distraction that I, you know, went for in those five minutes between tasks. So I'm going to carry some of that flow into the next task. And what I find really, really, truly satisfying and the most fun is to get like three or four things on a to-do list for like if it's 12 items long in a day. And by the time like I'm done eating breakfast and most people are actually getting out of bed, I've already done like two, half of my list. I get, that's very motivating to me. I get a lot of reward dopamine from that. So the hard thing is there literally not to remind me to get gritty. It's literally 
just about those 30-second, two-minute bits between the things because that's I'm like every that's where it gets wayward for me. I'm great at the tasks, the writing, the research, the like whatever, but I'm like everybody else, you know, I, I I'm susceptible to that break. So that's actually like it's there to remind me to be gritty. And when like, you know, every now and again that comes in handy, but it's really there for that exact purpose. Well, you mentioned the neurochemistry of dopamine when you're successful in doing something. Is that a part of why that formula works? Because you're getting, your brain's getting signals that like, hey, we're in accomplishment mode. Let's keep doing this because we're going to get over this. Couple things too. Always make a to-do list and always check the items off your to-do list the minute you finish them and then go to the next one. And the reason is you get dopamine when you finish a task, right? You've accomplished a goal, a little bit of dopamine. What does dopamine do? It's excitement, it's focus, it's motivation, it's energy. So I've crossed that off. I've now got a little dopamine. I want to take that dopamine into my next task because I've now got free energy and free focus. And the hardest part of any task, as we've already talked about, is the first 30, 40 seconds when you actually have to be gritty because it sucks. You're like, oh, fuck, this is actually work. Oh my God, I got to do work, right? Like that's everybody at the first 30, 40 seconds of a new task. You're like, oh yeah, this is harder than I thought. Oh, okay, right. Like, or it's the other, which is, oh my God, this is so easy. I can do this in three minutes. And then you like get to do two more things on your to-do list and cross them off. And it's even more dopamine. So basically I want to play that game with myself until my body says, dude, you got to like your prefrontal cortex is overlaid, working memory is overload. Then it's time to go take the dogs for a walk or I'm hungry, time to go eat or I'm exhausted, time to take a nap, right? Like if I can keep playing the dopamine reward, tat, like that's the game I want to play every day, all day, because that's momentum. And on top of everything else, we were talking earlier about intrinsic motivators and Flow is the biggest intrinsic motivator. It gets you all of your pleasure reward chemicals. But second to flow, mastery is our favorite motivator. We like the progress towards meaningful goals is our favorite thing. So tossing off items on our to-do list is also not like you're getting a little bit of dopamine each time, but the cumulative effect brings this towards the path to mastery. And that's its own reward so now, once again, we're going a lot farther, a lot faster with a lot less fuss. Less like I've got a sign that says do the hard thing because if I don't do the hard thing for 30 seconds, it becomes a much harder thing. That's the other, that's the corollary, right? Like if you don't do that, cool. All right, I, wanna, I want the break, whatever. But now when I come to the next hard task, I have to refocus. I got to get back into flow. I got to do a whole bunch of other stuff. It's actually a lot harder. Is there any value in sort of the converse of that using the same principle in going after more micro tasks that don't actually require a lot of grit and stacking the success of the little ones? To build up, or is that just going to yeah, be? Yeah, so I. It's, it's a great. It's a phenomenal question. Look, it's a, a really. It's a great question, and I'm. I don't. There is. I don't know the answer. Um, I haven't seen the research. Um, and there's, there's a bunch of different ways you can look at it. I can tell you, 
my personal experience is that when I tend to play with micro tasks is um, after my second hardest task, not before. Because usually the first hardest one is my writing. And I kind of love that no matter what. Like Even if it's terrible, I kind of love that. It's usually the second thing on the list that's the real... Like I got to get the writing done for me to feel fulfilled in a day. And like, I can't do it. I can't do anything else ahead of that. And I won't. I've learned that about myself. Um, So I always prioritize that, but it's usually the second task is the one. So I don't do it between my second task. But if like I finish the second task and I look at my list and I'm like, oh, wow, I can get four micro tasks done before breakfast. Yeah, I totally do that for the exact up mid reward you're talking about. Um, And I find that I find that useful. Right. And what I also find useful about it is if I can uh, get more stuff done, it builds a little bit of uh, less time stress into what I have to do in my afternoon. And time stress is a fear limit. It produces fear, which blocks creativity. Everything I do requires creative problem solving, creative decision making. There's, you know, I do research, I write. I you know, run a company. Like all the things I do require greater problem solving all day long. So I want to keep anxiety in check and time stress um, is a huge one for me, right? Um, before I got successful, it was money stress. After I got successful, it was time stress. Same as every, you know what I mean? Like same as everybody else. And right. so um, if I can buy myself that extra feeling of time, that means when I sit down to my afternoon writing session, if I have a bad paragraph that I bump into and I need to spend 40 minutes on that bad paragraph, I can do that because I'm not time stressed. What value is there in physically writing down big goals or even small tasks associated with those goals versus keeping it in Evernote or in some digital format? Uh, So one... Once you have autonomy and mastery, you need goals. That's where it comes in the stack. And what is the system, uh, the biology needs at least, many more, but for most of us, at least three levels of goals to work at its best. So you need mission statement goals, right? At the top of the pyramid, I want to be the best writer in the history of the universe. Then you need high, hard goals. Um, these are like the one to five year sub chunks that go into the mission level goal. The mission level goal is usually like an impossible sounding thing. The chunks are the high, the hard, you know, I'm going to get a degree in journalism. I'm going to get a job working for a magazine. I'm going to write a book about fishing. I'm going to write a book about, right, like the, all the steps you would take to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe. And then you need the daily tasks, right? Today, I'm going to write 500 words in my new book. And when I'm done, my readers are going to feel happy. They're going to read the words and feel happy, right? Like that's a clear goal. Um, and as I said, figure out how many clear goals you can do in a day and be excellent at them. And that's what you do. Those levels, if you've get those those levels right, um, you're in business. Now, you asked a question of why do you want to write all these goals by hand instead of on Evernote? And I don't, with high hard goals and mission level goals, I think you can write them on whatever you want. but for the clear goals, um, one of the things you are doing is in creating a clear goal list is you're trying to get stuff out of your working memory. You're exporting shit that's in your head onto the page. This lowers cognitive load, all the attention. One, this is a big flow trigger because when I lower cognitive load, I liberate some extra energy and you can reuse it for focus and attention in the present moment. So clear goals 
sort of work as a focusing mechanism and as a flow trigger that way. Um, but uh, because there's a we we've been writing by hand for a very long time. We've been writing by computer for a very short time. There seems to be some kind of biological evolutionary hardwiring between hand motion and memory. Um, and uh, maybe it's the bigger hand motion that comes from writing. Maybe just that's it, right? And maybe writing on a tablet might actually get this done. I haven't seen work that says that, but um, I don't chance it. I just write it on a piece of paper, right? Like just clear goals list every day. I do it at the end of the day for the next morning. Um, so I come in and I know immediately, what am I doing now? What am I doing next? So I can keep all my focus on what I'm doing and drive flow and performance. I, I actually loved that you recommended that because there have been various times since, uh, you know, over the past 10 years or so that I've digitized much of my life and reluctantly accustomed myself to different apps and communicating on Slack and, you know, doing all the things. And I've tried so many times to put my to-do list and my goals into digital format and it never sticks. I always... I've tried. I know. I mean, I, I mean, by the way, I started looking at the research into this because I had the exact same experience because I, for years, I didn't keep an online calendar. So try to have an executive assistant run a company without an online calendar. But if it went into the calendar... I didn't, I, it, I couldn't, it wasn't doing the job. It wasn't like I needed to write it down by hand to trust that it was actually like, this was a thing. The computer didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was glad, I was glad to hear that. I guess if you have a, you know, a, a paper calendar and you're working with other people, you'd have to constantly be taking pictures of it. Uh, so I, you know, I have, I have adopted the, uh, you know, the, the iCal. I keep, I, by the way, I keep both. I have what I literally, when I wake up now, what I do now is uh, usually I've, I've moved it from the end of the day uh, to the morning uh, pretty much re recently. Um, uh, but uh, I will wake up and I will open my electronic calendar that my assistant keeps for me. And I will then take the stuff that's on the calendar and all the other stuff I want to do in the day and then, and then make my clear goals list. I'm going to do that. Yeah, that's exactly that. like that. that's exactly what I do. I don't. Uh, I have found that I take it just by literally taking it off the calendar and getting on it. You know, I I I do a daily gratitude practice as well. So I like I'll write the clear goals list and then I'll like write below it same sheet of paper the gratitude, um, my gratitude work. And no, I don't keep a diary or a journal. Like it's literally on scraps of paper and they get thrown out at the end of the day. Well, there's another interesting piece to that I think too, and that is how potentially distracting and addictive digital, uh, the digital world is. So it's like, I know that if I get up and open my computer, I might be very intent on doing that hard thing first, but then all of a sudden, ding, 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 all of these other... Yeah, that's why you want to practice distraction in. management ahead of time, right? This is another, yeah. uh, the, the, the daily things that you need to do is, um, I this I do do at the end of every day. I end my day by... I know I'm going to start writing the next morning. So anything that could block that. So email gets turned off. All my messages and alerts get everything get just gets shut down um, so that I'm uninterrupted until, you know, 8 a.m. when I'm actually open for business. Yeah, very smart. Well, I'm inspired by your prolific production of books. I've been working on a book for a few months and uh, I have a newfound respect for writers, especially ones like you that 
continually just churn out amazing books. So um, you're you're truly an inspiration there. And I'm, I've been taking a lot of mental notes here because it's it's no joke. I mean, everyone- Oh, thinks- dude. So Flow for Writers is your friend. If you go to my website, okay. um, w- yeah, like I- Pretty. If you if if there's a thought leader out there who's wanted to write a book in the past five years, I've trained them. Cool. I so many. You cannot. You have no idea how many people have come through this workshop and produced books on the other side. And I've saved people a lot of years. It's sort of everything I learned about how to write a book, how to sell a book, how to market a book. Every like all of it plus flow science plus the science of creativity pushed together. Um, Dude, it's um, yeah, Amazing. it's um. Yeah, it. Uh, we've been doing it for a while. It's all digital, and uh, it. Yeah, it, it just. Uh, you know, shameless promo interlude, but Great. it probably will help you. Oh, that's amazing! No, I'm on it. Done, done. Absolutely. And uh, actually, well, my next question uh, was really in closing. Uh, where can people find you, your work, anything you want to promote? Uh, I know sure. the book. Obviously, give us all the links, etc. So the new book, by the way, the pornographic sound in the background, that is my 120-pound sheepdog drinking. <laughs> and it's just not going to stop. I couldn't even wrestle him away from the water if I tried. All right, um, you can't even hear it. But uh, com is me. And if Flow for Writers is your thing, if you're a writer, you'll find that under the training tab. And for the rest of everything else we do at the Flow Research Collective, um, whether you're interested in training flow with us or just want to learn a ton more about flow and don't want to spend any money, go uh, go to the flowresearchcollective.com, click on the video tab. There's hundreds of hours of, of free content there for you. And uh, Art of Impossible, Amazon is your friend. And uh, if you're not going to Amazon, if you're going into the world, support your indies. Cool. Awesome. And uh, my very last question is this, who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life and work that you'd like to share with us? So shout out to Robert Hastings, um, who was my junior year English teacher. Um, I was a punk rock fuck up kid. Um, I, my sixth grade teacher told me I wouldn't live to see 30 and she wasn't wrong. And I had a teacher, uh, he let us argue about literature and like, I mean, argue like, you know, you're 16 years old and you're screaming at classmates over Ethan Frome or like... Tessa Dubervilles or like books that you would never be passionate about, but he let us get passionate about it. And uh, so, yeah, that, that was actually the first time I realized I was smart. I had no idea that like I could use my brain and do anything with it, but I realized I would keep, I would win. I was winning these arguments because I was understanding the books better than other people. And I was like, wait a minute, I am actually good at something. Huh? Go figure. Um, shout out to Robert Hastings. Shout out to, uh, Oh my God, John Barth, who was my, who I started under in grad school, sort of the godfather of American metafiction and just taught me so much about writing um, that I, that would never be anywhere without him. And, you know, my first mentor in neuroscience was Dr. Andrew Newberg, who was then at the University of Pennsylvania. He's now at Jefferson University. And he was the guy, when I started to notice that all the athletes I was talking to uh, we're talking about like everybody I was talking to who were doing amazing things. They were all talking about flow, but the athletes were always like, don't tell anybody. But like when I'm surfing, I'm becoming one with the ocean or don't tell anybody right when I'm mountaineering, I'm one with the mountain. And I'd be like, okay, I won't tell anybody, but everybody was telling me this stuff. And Newberg had just done the first brain imaging on, on monks 
meditating uh, Tibetan Buddhists who felt one with the universe. And so I called them up and I was like, look, is there any possible way the thing that you're seeing in the brains of monks could be the same thing that I'm seeing in the brains of action sport athletes? Like, you know, is there any, and that was sort of the beginning of my work in neuroscience with flow that was, you know, 1999. And it sort of went from there. Wow. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. Well, uh, well, sir, thank you uh, so much for joining us today, man. I was really looking forward to this conversation. You've been on my my list of uh, interviewees for a couple of years now. I'm sorry I was disappointing. I, I have that effect on people. <laughs> no, it's great, man. It's great to get to know you. And I'm so happy to find your resource for writers because I'm, I mean, I'm reading and listening to everything I can to help me with that. Oh, yeah, just... So great. Take flow for right. One, it's one-stop shopping. It really, it really, it was, uh, I was sitting with Neil Strauss, who wrote yeah. the game and right. And like, I think between the two of us, we had like, you know, 10 New York Times best. I mean, it was a, it was a lot of talent in the room or a lot of, and we started going deep on all the like ticks, tips and tricks and techniques that we had sort of like, what did you use? What did you use? And <laughs> I had this big long list and I came home and Neil sort of like parked it and didn't, I was all excited. I was like, this is cool. Let's do something. He's like, yeah, whatever. I'm busy. But I just sort of obsessed over it. I was like, let, kept working on the list. And finally, like I got to a point where I was like, holy crap, if you would have taught me this when I was 25, you could have added a zero to my income and you could have t- saved me 10 years. And I was like, oh, maybe I should teach this to other people. Maybe it'll, and so it's, um, it seems to be working. So that's great. I'm excited for that. Yeah. Neil's, uh, one of my favorite writers and a friend and someone that's been on the show a couple of times. And I like Neil a lot. He's like the guy that I've I've resisted calling to bug about like, so hey, I mean, I'm like, I imagine he gets probably five calls a week from from friends like me. This, by the way, I like this is the other reason <laughs> I built flow for writers. Cause like I didn't well, I was like, fine, it's a course. You can yeah, yeah. go there. Do this. Don't don't ask me these questions. Smart, smart. Yeah, I mean, because it really is a it's a very very unique skill. And even if one is a good writer, which I think I am, the the skill set is not just in writing. It's like getting yeah, to the yeah. writing, right? And there's yeah, there's I mean, there's you know, I co- we cover I cover everything that you need to know in the craft of write in writing. Meaning like, and I'm sure there's stuff I'm missing, but like, how do you do an interview? How do you Find an expert. How do you, you know, how do you structure a book? It's a huge question. How do you, you know, all that stuff? And how do you write? Um, there's neurobiology underneath engaging fiction, right? Or underneath engaging writing. Like when people read my books, even though the ideas are big, they're fun reads. Like they're gripping entertaining work. And the reason is because there's biology for excitement. And if you know what it is, you can use it and you, your readers are going to have a better time. Wow. Very cool. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that today. And uh, congratulations on the book. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, man. Thanks for your interest. I appreciate it. All right. You got it. Cheers. Well, folks, we've done it again. We have improved our lives by learning about how to achieve and maintain flow states and creativity. What an incredible guest. This one was a long time coming and one that I truly enjoyed. I'd like to invite you to come back next week for another episode of the Lifestylist Podcast. It's called It's All in Your Head, Neurocranial Restructuring for Pain, Migraines, and True Alignment with Dr. Dean Howell. And that conversation, my friends, is a trip and not one that you want to miss. 
And don't forget to tune in this Friday for a very special solo cast Q&A show with questions taken from the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. And if you'd like to ask some questions, join the group. Hell, if you want to answer some questions, join the group. Half the people in there know a lot more than I do. It's a really incredible community of over 6,000 people. That is the Lifestylist Podcast Facebook group. Request to join. We'll let you in and you can join the party. Let's take a moment to thank our sponsors. First and foremost, we've got Juve, the incredible red light therapy. That's J-O-O-V-V dot com slash Luke. Now, if you use the code Luke, you can receive an exclusive discount on Juve's Generation 3.0 devices. They've got some really cool new innovations for their red light technology. I'd also like to invite you, of course, to get your chill on. I mean, speaking of flow states... I don't know if anything helps you get into a flow state as much as kava. And you can get your hands on some kava, an incredible plant medicine, at kavaplex.com. That's K-A-V-A-P-L-E-X, kavaplex.com. Once you get over there and fill up your little cart, if you put in the code LUKE20, you will save yourself a cool 20%. And uh, let's talk about hydration and fasting. Element, our friends over at Element. The URL there is drinkelement.com. That's D R I N K L M N T.com slash Luke. Drinkelement.com slash Luke. Some very tasty electrolytes, not the least of which being their brand new 2021 flavor, watermelon salt. And this stuff is delicious. Uh, no need to drink those sugary, fake-ass electrolytes drinks anymore, folks. Uh, You can get your hands on some Element and be living the dream. These things make fasting easy, uh, workout recovery. Anytime your body's dehydrated or you just need more salt and minerals, Element has got it for you. I love this stuff. I'm taking it on the daily. It has helped me curb my late-night snacking uh, incredibly, actually. It's very effective for a number of things. So those are our three sponsors. And just know... Uh, the vast majority of the time, you can find our sponsors over at lukestory.com slash store. So if you hear me rattle off all of these URLs and discount codes and you're pulling the car over about to hit someone on a bicycle, don't do that. Just take a pause and know that you can find it in my online store in most cases, as I said, and the discount codes are all there too. And additionally, you'll find my two decades worth of research products modalities, technologies, etc., all at lukestory.com slash store, where I have a very neatly curated collection of everything I use in my personal life to stay happy, vital, and uh, hopefully improve my longevity. So there you go, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. I greatly appreciate your ears and your kind attention. Uh, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life. I am so blessed to be able to participate in these inspiring conversations and even more so to share them with you. Speaking of sharing, if you enjoyed this interview with Stephen Kotler, text it to a friend right now and I'll be back this Friday and then again Tuesday. Tuesday.